I came across a very interesting story a few weeks ago um, about a track coach back in the 60s and 70s, early 60s, late 50s, uh, on up through the 70s. His name was Bill Bowerman. Anybody heard of Bill Bowerman before? A couple of you. Well, I guarantee you, you've heard some things, some things he has done. Uh, he was a very ambitious track coach. He, he coached track at the University of Oregon. Uh, they have a big old statue of him up there now, but uh, he was uh, very intent on winning. And he would pursue everything he could to, to achieve that goal. Uh, he never cheated. He, he absolutely wanted to win by uh, the right way. Uh, but in trying to better his, his track athletes, particularly his runners, um, he would tinker with their equipment to try to figure out how to make it better. And so after, track, after practice one day, uh, he, he took a bunch of their shoes home. And he went out to his workshop out behind his house, and he grabbed his waffle iron from his kitchen. And without his wife knowing that he was doing this, uh, he began to melt the bottom of those track shoes on that waffle iron, trying to get them a little more traction, trying to help them run just a little bit better on the track. Uh, and then he dried those things and took them to practice the next day, and uh, his, his runners didn't quite understand what he had done to their shoes in uh, melting them down and creating this new weird thing on the bottom of them. But they instantly saw the results as they were faster and better equipped than the other guys on the track. And so he did it for all his athletes then. And he actually went on to train um, a couple handfuls of Olympians, uh, 30-some-odd All-Americans, and he coached the Olympic team in 1972, uh, Bill Bowerman did, the the Olympic track team. And uh, with this new shoe idea... His athletes went on and did great things, but one of them coming up graduated and wanted to take his coach's idea of these funky shoes and sell them. And so they partnered with this company, I think out of Japan, and for a few years they sold these shoes, for five years they sold these shoes using this company in Japan. I can't remember the name that they were using, but when their contract lapsed, they uh, wanted to bring the manufacturing you know, to America and, and begin to make them themselves. And so they began to make the shoes themselves and sell them, but they couldn't use the same name that they used with the, with the Japan company, so they had to come up with a new name. And so they came up with this name, Nike. And they began to sell shoes that no one had ever seen before, changing the face of sneakers, uh, really creating a whole new market that really hadn't existed before or had been dominated by Chuck Taylor, Converse All-Stars. Um, and so they began to sell these shoes, and obviously it went gangbusters. But people began to ask Bill Bowerman about what drove him. How, how was he able not only to create these shoes, but get so many athletes to do so many great things? And, as, and he would just say, well, they're just good kids, and they would go. But, and he wouldn't really give them a straight answer. So they began to ask everyone around him, the other coaches, the, the, his competing coaches, his, his opposing coaches, as well as former athletes. And every single one of them said, well, it's his competitive nature. He has to win. He, he can't stand losing. He has to win. And it drives him, it motivates him, and it pours out of him into everyone around him. He has to win. You see, when it comes to really what drives us in our lives, 
and, and where our focus is in our motivations. There are many different things that can drive us. But Scripture gives us one particular avenue that we should pursue above all else. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2, as we've been doing these last few weeks. We've been looking at what is the purpose of church. And we looked at when the church was first started in Acts chapter 2. 120 of Jesus' followers receive the Holy Spirit, go out and, and begin to tell people about Jesus. 3,000 people get saved, and they start their church that day with 3,120 people. And then in, Scripture talks about at the end of Acts 2 that that church then did five specific things. And so we're examining what those five things are. Um, uh, last week, uh, we started off and we looked at uh, uh, one of those uh, areas uh, uh, that the church uh, was doing uh, there. Um, and today we're taking a look at another one. And over the next few weeks, we're going to continue on uh, looking at uh, the rest. Last week it was discipleship. Today we're going to be asking the question, what is worship? So Acts chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 46. says, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. They were praising, the first couple of words of verse 47. They were praising God. And the first couple of verses of verse 46, day by day, applies to everything that comes after it. So day by day, they were praising God. Praising God day by day. Praise is a form of worship, as we're going to see. But this uh, springboarded from this into a verse in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15. Author of Hebrews writes, Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. So a continual sacrifice of praise. That goes right from that Acts chapter 2 passage, day by day, praising God. So offer a continual sacrifice of praise. So the things we, we, we offer to the Lord, the, the things we do throughout the day, ought to be a, a form of praise in, in how we function, in how we interact, in how we speak offer a continual sacrifice of praise. If you were to take an inventory of your last 24 hours, would you say you had a continual sacrifice of praise at everything that came out of your mouth and passed through your brain? Nobody's raising their hand. Well, I'm not either. Because <laughs> I guarantee you, it did not happen. Uh, it, it, it is an aspiration. It's something we should be pursuing. Uh, and so that's why the author is saying, let us try this. Let us work towards this process. He says, through Jesus is the only way this is possible. If you work through yourself, it's not going to happen. If you work through yourself, you're going to continually be offering a sacrifice of something, but it's not praise. He says, through Jesus, you can offer a continual sacrifice of praise. But what exactly is praise? You know, what is, what does the word itself mean? You know, going back to the original language, the word means to speak well of something or someone, or to speak well to someone. Uh, it is basically praise is really the vocal form of worship. It's the vocal form of worship to speak it. But that begs the question then: What is worship? If praise is a vocal form of worship, what is worship? 
Well, the words of Paul we're going to look at in, in the book of Romans. Uh, throughout Romans chapter 11, Paul is saying that humanity is disobedient to God. That we disobey God all the time. We go about and we do our own thing and we do what we want and not what God wants. Uh, um, and so we're pursuing our pursuits and not God's pursuits. And so we're disobeying him. But then Paul writes, but still God has mercy on everybody. God or he says, God wants to have mercy on everybody. He does have mercy on those who believe. That when we choose God, it's like an opening the door to his mercy. And so he says, Paul's saying in, in Romans chapter 11, even though we're disobedient, God wants to have mercy on all of us. All we need is faith. And so then, when we have received God's mercy, Paul writes Romans chapter 12, verse 1. This is, should be our response. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So this is, this is worship. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship, your genuine worship. Now, that word worship is, is very interesting. It's anything that is done with a holy attention so that what is done and how it is done bring holy honor to the one we're giving our attention to. So it's anything that is done with holy attention. Now, that doesn't mean that everything you do can be worship, because I guarantee you, everything we do, if we're thinking about us, it's not worship. If we're fulfilling our own pleasures and not thinking about Jesus, it's our own. It's not worship of him, it's worship of self. You can even be standing here in this room singing these great songs we're singing and not be worshiping because your thoughts are somewhere else. If your thoughts are not on Jesus, it's not worship. It's not. You can be praying and it not be worship. Jesus spoke about that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said there's some people who pray and use these big highfalutin words so that everybody else will think they're more holy and more spiritual and smarter. But when other people are, are giving them praise, they're getting their reward from those people and not from God. And so it's about where your focus is. It doesn't mean you can't use big words when you pray. You can. God's got a pretty big vocabulary. But it's about where your attention is. If your attention is on other people or on yourself, then it's not worship. It's not at all. He's, holy attention is what worship is all about. You know, when we remove the holy from the attention that was designed for the Lord, and we give it to something else, less than holy, like people or situations or politics or uh, uh, an article we read on, on social media, then we're taking what was meant for God and replacing it with something else or essentially making an idol out of something. Now, we wouldn't call it that, most of us, we wouldn't, we wouldn't think, well, that's an idol. But whenever you take something that was your attention, focused on the Lord, that was meant for him, and give it to something else, you're replacing him with this other thing. You're making an idol out of it. You're taking that thing and putting it in God's spot. Say, I'm going to think all about this and only about this, and this is where my attention is going to be. This is going to direct all of my, my decisions, and this is going to, going to be the only thing I obsess about, the only thing I talk about, the only thing I spend money on. This is all of it right here. And so we're pushing God to the side and focusing on this thing. And it can be anything in this created world. 
anything. But there's still hope. We need to be pursuing what God would have us to pursue. Not what other people would have us pursue, not what we would have ourselves pursue, but have our attention fixed on the Lord. Paul wrote about something very similar in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He said, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So if we do stuff to make other people happy, then we're doing it for them and not Jesus. That doesn't mean you can't ever make other people happy. <laughs> I'm going to do everything that's going to make everybody mad, and then I'm good. Now, it's not all what he's saying. He's saying, you can just, just do what God would have you to do, and if it makes other people happy or if it makes other people mad, that's on them. Just do what Jesus has for you to do. He says, because when you stop doing what Jesus would have you to do and stop thinking about uh, uh, pleasing him, even in your job or at home, if you stop thinking about how he would have you do it, in Paul's words in that verse, you're not being a servant of Christ. I mean, and, and I read that, and I'm like, man, Paul, I mean, that's just, that's pretty harsh. I mean, he's saying you're not being a Christian, not acting like it at least. I mean, you're still one. You don't lose your salvation at all. But he's saying just start acting like it. Start acting like it. If I were trying to please man, now notice what he says in that verse, if I were still trying to please man. So what does that say about Paul? He spent a good chunk of his life trying to please people. Before he was a Christian, he doesn't even say, he doesn't even say that he stopped trying to please people when he became a Christian. And we know in the in book of Romans, he talks about struggles he has as a Christian. He talks about it in Corinthians. But he's saying, if I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So it's a struggle we can still have now, trying to please people. We all have that struggle. Even people who put up a front and act like they, they don't struggle with that, it's a constant struggle because that's just the way we're wired. And so Paul says, okay, we have to make a conscious decision. I'm going to be motivated by the Lord. I'm going to keep my attention fixed on the Lord and have all this other stuff pass away. I mean, it's that quote that I say very often from Charles Stanley. Obey the Lord and leave all the consequences to him. Just focus on what God would have you do. And he'll take care of everything else. Or in the words of Jesus, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And all these things will be added to you. So do you, or do what you do for the Lord because of his approval. You know what's great about his approval? The Lord's approval is not performance-based. His approval of you doesn't depend on how good you are today. It's absolutely <laughs> faith-based. You believe in Jesus, you're in heaven. Check mark. You're good to go. That doesn't mean you've got to be perfect today, tomorrow, the next day, the day after that, because, spoiler alert, you're not going to be. You just have to do your best to follow him. Follow him with everything you've got, every opportunity you have. Pursue him above all else. Because his rewards are far better than what anybody else is going to offer you. His rewards are far better. Do everything you have for him. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Tony, go back to verse 23. 
So whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. I know you all use that word heartily every single day in your conversation. How are you doing today? Hearty. You know, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. This, word, this phrase, work heartily, this is what it means. It literally means work from your soul. Work with all of your heart. Work with everything you got as though you're doing it for God and not for other people. As though you're doing it for God and not your boss. As though you're doing it for God and not your spouse. As though you're doing it for God and not your kids. As though you're doing it for God and not your parents. As though you're doing it for God and not even yourself. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Give it every... Mow the yard as though you're mowing it for Jesus. Do the dishwasher as though you're doing it for Jesus. Pick up as though you're doing it for Jesus. Speak to each other as though you're doing it for Jesus. Talk to the windstream guy after you've been on hold for 45 minutes as though you're doing it for Jesus. Personal experience this week. Twice. (laughs) Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Heart, everything you've got, give it everything you've got. Do what you do to the best of your ability with worship, with your attention on the Lord. So give it everything you've got with your attention on the Lord. And that's worship. That's worship. Do your best with holy attention. Do your best with holy attention. Don't suck the holy out of it and just do your best with attention on something, random things. Do your best with holy attention, and everything's going to change. Everything's going to change. Do your best with holy. It's going to change what you do, because there's some stuff we do that you can't do with holy attention. There's some stuff we watch you can't be watching with holy attention. Some stuff we listen to, we can't listen to with holy attention. I'm not just talking about music. There's some gossip. You can't be listening to gossip if you've got holy attention. You've got to shut that mess down. You think people run, when Jesus walked the earth with his disciples, people ran up to Jesus to gossip to him and he just let them go? Do your best with holy attention. Holy attention. Do your best with holy attention. It'll change everything. That is worship. Worship the Lord in every circumstance, at every opportunity. But you may say, well, you know, your best holy attention. Okay, fine. But what if my situation right now is, is, is pretty difficult? What if my situation right now is, is not so holy? You know, like, how can I worship God when the world's crumbling around me? I want to show you something. This, it's sitting on the screen. Don't panic, Tony. This is, <laughs> I, 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 this, the Lord gave this to me a little bit ago. I want to show you something in Job chapter 2. Just turn there real quick. Job is right before the book of Psalms. So pretty much you go to the middle of the Bible, pop it open, and go left just a little bit. So Job, he's got a bad deal. Satan's tempting him, trying to get him to curse God. 
takes away his kids, takes away his, his, all his money, takes away all his property, takes away his health. And his wife comes to him and says, curse God and die. In verse 10 of Job chapter 2, Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. His sin came later, but not here. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? I want, to know, I want you to notice something in, in those verses, in that verse. He said, we were all happy and everything was hunky-dory and we were free. We, we, we loved worshiping God when everything was good. But when the evil came, you saying we're not supposed to worship God now? That's kind of what he's saying. But I want you to notice in that verse, he says, shall we receive good from God comma, and shall we not receive evil? Question mark. Are there any words between the word evil and the question mark? Look in your Bibles. Mine doesn't have any words because there's not any. What Job didn't say, Job did not say this, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive evil from God? God doesn't give you evil. I don't know if you knew that or not. Scripture tells us God is good. And evil cannot come from what is good. Because if evil came from what is good, then what is good is not good. Only good comes from what is good. Evil comes from a broken world. Sin broke this world, and now evil comes from that. Sickness comes from that. Death comes from that. God didn't do that. The broken world did that. And so Job, now if you read through the book of Job, he does get a little foolish later and a little prideful later, and God calls him on that at the end of the book. But here, Job isn't sinning at this point. He says, God gave us good, and we accepted it, and we were happy, and everything was hunky-dory, and we worshiped. But now the evil has come. Are we not supposed to still have the same spirit and same attitude? Circumstance, if we're focused and our attention is on the Lord, circumstance doesn't change our heart's position. If anything, it should drive us to our knees faster. He says, no, we gotta, we got to worship. The reason I bring this up is I came across a song a couple days ago. Uh, it's it an album by one of my favorite groups that um, I didn't even know they put one out. It came out in July. And I was flipping through the songs, listening to them, and, and there's one Ethan and I listen to the Thursday and Friday coming to school, and, and or we center, and he just loves it. Um, uh, but right after that, there's another song. I'm going to read you some of those lyrics. It's by a group called Wren Collective. Let's see. Okay, here we go. I'm not going to tell you the name of the song yet, but this is what it says. I'll find a way to praise you from the bottom of my broken heart because I think I'd rather strike a match than curse the dark. I'll find a way to thank you though the bitterness is real and hard because I'd rather take a chance on hope than fall apart. I don't think I'm ready to surrender to the dark. And here's, here's the kicker. Even if my daylight never dawns, even if my breakthrough never comes, even if I'll fight to bring you praise, 
Even if my dreams fall to the ground, even if I'm lost, I know I'm found. Even if my heart will somehow say, hallelujah, anyway. That's the name of the song, hallelujah, anyway. That no matter what comes, I'm still going to say hallelujah. I'm going to decide beforehand that circumstance isn't going to direct my praise. Circumstance isn't going to direct my worship. My worship is going to be directed by the one I'm worshiping, the Lord. And he doesn't change. He's always good. And he is worthy of praise. He is worthy of worship. And so worship, remember, is doing your best with holy attention. Praise being a part of worship. As you sing, as you say things, you do your best, you say your best with holy attention. So you're singing the songs with holy attention. With holy attention about the Lord. Work heartily as though you're doing it for the Lord. Like for instance, I said a minute ago, mowing the yard. You're mowing the yard. The Lord gave me the yard. Man, his creation's beautiful. I'm not just going to try to get through it as fast as possible and do this and that and the other thing. and Have holy attention because he gave it for a purpose. Parent, for a purpose, because he gave you the kids, for a reason. He gave you the season you're in right now, for a reason. It's not just to muddle through it and try to get to the weekend as quick as possible. He gave it to you for a reason. You, with your gifts and your talents and your personality, so that you can better accomplish what he's got for you to accomplish in this world, in this life. Hallelujah. Anyway. Tuesday morning, you wake up, things are rough, you don't want to go to work, you don't want to go and do what's on your list, aches and pains, and you step out of bed and aches and pains, and you're moving around, and somebody says something, and it's frustrating, and you got to do this, and this thing breaks, and the washer breaks, and the dishwasher breaks, and the, the dog's done, messed up the house, and everything's going crazy. Hallelujah. Anyway. Do your best. Holy attention. Even though it's hard, even though it's difficult. Hallelujah anyway. Think about Jesus traveling around with those disciples, camping out at night, sleeping next to Judas, knowing what's coming. Sleeping next to Peter, knowing he's going to deny him. Jesus never stopped praising. He always prayed. Even dying on the cross, nails in his wrists and his feet, you know, blood going everywhere. Had the presence of mind to share the gospel with the guy on the cross next to him. Hallelujah anyway. How worshipful is your life? Where is your attention in your life? Because that's what undergirds worship. That's what guides worship. That is the foundation of of worship. What has your attention? And then will you give your attention to Jesus? Will you give him your attention? Maybe you're like me and you need a periodic attention recalibration. And by periodic, I mean like every five minutes to, to, to really get recalibrated on the Lord and say, okay, that, that thought is, is from my evil sin nature. That's from the enemy. I need to get back to, to this. I need to get back to the Lord. I need to get back to this and what God would have me to do. Yeah, I know the internet's down. Yeah, I know the 
The uh, air conditioner went out. Yeah, yeah, okay. The ice machine's not working at the church. Okay, we got a leak going over here. The 15,000 light bulbs are out. And we, we got this and that. And, and this person's calling and yelling about whatever. He got this email. Hallelujah anyway. Hallelujah. Anyway. Just because stuff going bad, does that mean Jesus isn't still worthy of praise? Will you praise him? Will you put your attention on him? Whatever comes. Do your best with holy attention. Holy attention. And in just a second, we're about to do, uh, uh, try to recalibrate our attention. Even right here in the worship service, when we're talking about holy attention, talking about worship, we're going to have this moment to worship as we do this. Do our best with holy attention as we take of this Lord's Supper. But a key component of that is knowing the Lord. You know, the Lord's Supper, we call it the Lord's Supper, it really started with um, the Passover meal. The Jews would partake of the Passover. You know, when they came out of slavery in Egypt, the last plague that was brought that spurred Pharaoh on to letting the Israelites leave from slavery was the uh, death of all the firstborns in the nation. And the only way that a household would, would uh, prevent the firstborn from dying was they had to kill a lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost. And the scripture said then the, the angel that brought the death would pass over their house. Passover. That's where the phrase comes from. And so that, they, they, they instilled, instituted this meal that they partake of every single year as a reminder of God's provision, as a reminder of God's salvation. They have this meal every year to remember what God has done. And every piece of the meal has a purpose. I mean, it's a big, long, uh, we did one here, a Passover Seder meal here a few years ago and planning on doing one again next year. I'll put it on your calendars. Um, that uh, every piece of the meal, I mean, right down to coming and sitting down where everybody sits at the table, Everybody's got a job to do as a part of the meal, the stuff you eat at the meal, how many times you take a drink. Uh, all this stuff has a purpose and a reason behind it. And as you do each one of these, somebody at the table is supposed to be describing the meaning behind it. Well, when Jesus came along and he was doing his ministry, what we have in Scripture are, are three different Passovers that per took place while he was doing his ministry. The first one took place right after he started his ministry, after he did the, the miracle of water into wine. There was a Passover. Uh, the second one happened when he was away from Jerusalem. And the third one happened um, right as he was being crucified. Uh, but the night before he was going to be crucified, he asked his disciples to go get the Passover ready, which was a big job. I mean, you've, you've got to get the meat ready, and you've got to get all of the drinks ready, and you've got to get the table laid out just right, and you've got to have everybody sitting in these specific spots. And so he sent some of the disciples to go get the meal ready, and it was going to take them hours to do this. And so they went and got the meal ready, and uh, the disciples all came together for the meal that night. And as they're taking, now imagine taking the Passover meal with Jesus as the narrator. I mean, man, alive. And so Jesus is there, and he's uh, walking them through the Passover meal. But as he's doing it, he begins to change the meaning behind some of the things, some of the elements of the meal. He's uh, um, fulfilling the elements, really, is what he's doing. He's saying this stuff symbolized 
God's provision and God's salvation from Egypt, but it was also looking forward to the salvation that was going to come, eternal salvation. And he gets to two specific parts. Uh, when uh, there's one moment he's going to drink something and one moment he's going to eat something, and he takes the bread and he breaks it that in you know, the regular, the, the old Passover meal meant one thing, and he's saying, guys, this is going to mean something new. Because for several years, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going to die and he's going to raise from the dead. He's saying this is going to fulfill scripture that, has, that says that the Messiah has to die and has to raise from the dead. And he, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this bread being broken now represents my body being broken. He says, now, every time you do this, you break the bread as a part of this meal, you need to remember that my body was broken so that you can live forever. And they passed it around. Everybody took off a chunk and they ate the bread. And then he took the drink. And uh, he said, now this drink, it represents my blood that's going to be spilled. And at this moment, I mean, it's going to be spilled in just a few hours. He says, it's going to be spilled so that the covenant that is being established tomorrow, that's what he's speaking to them, can be sealed. Now, you got to understand something also about biblical covenants. That a biblical covenant was only ratified, was only sealed, was only put into practice when blood was spilled. If there was no blood, there was no covenant. And so they, that's why they sacrificed some of the animals, you know, when the covenants were put into practice, um, like with Abraham and with Noah and, and with Moses and with uh, 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 David. Blood had to be spilled. Blood had to be, be spilled. But every time that the blood was spilled, it was death. Death for the thing that was being sacrificed. But there's a unique difference in Jesus saying, now this drink is going to represent my blood that's spilled for this new covenant, because the new covenant's eternal. The old covenant's, you know, the Israelites broke them pretty fast. He says, this new covenant's forever, and you can't break it. Because this isn't with the blood of, of a lamb, this isn't with the blood of a dove, this isn't with the blood of an ox. This new covenant is with the blood of God. And so it can never be undone by anything you would do. It's forever. The new covenant, the, the, he says, the drink represents my blood for the new covenant. And so like I said, the old covenants, all of them, ended in death for the thing being sacrificed. The new covenant ends in life. Not just for the thing being sacrificed, Jesus, the one, but also for everyone who partakes of the covenant. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, we call it the Lord's Supper because he's the Lord. Some people call it communion. Some people call it the Eucharist. All meaning the same thing. This is the Lord's Supper. This is, he is the Lord. He instituted this supper for us to take to remember what he did for us in establishing salvation. Salvation. So that we could be a part of what he is doing in our lives. Remembering it and not forgetting. 